0: These are birth pangs, the trouble, the chaos, the violence and the war and the disaster. This world is giving way to another one, not some spiritual never-never land, but a transformed creation. And if you look at Paul's famous phrase in Romans 8, which echoes exactly this teaching of Jesus, Paul says all creation is grown in pain, like a woman about to give birth. So we've talked about these three practices from monastic Christianity that can be fully secularized, fully applied in a secular context. We talked about meditatio, we talked about lectio, divina, and orat labora. I think what's striking about these three is that they are solitary practices. They don't need to be, of course, but they can certainly be solitary, and in some cases they're best done in solitude. I think meditation is best done in solitude. And so it raises the question of community and the question of, you know, why a contemplative needs a community. And it's quite clear that a contemplative needs a community. The Desert Fathers were more or less forced into community by, by Anthony the Hermit when he saw that they were all becoming hopelessly neurotic, if not psychotic, by living alone in little huts in the wilderness around, in the Egyptian wilderness. Yeah. And I think Merton said somewhere that a contemplative without a community is one of the most dangerous things in the world. So we need community. But what do we need a community for? Or you could put it a different way. You could say, what is it that a contemplative cannot do alone? And that's the kind of way I like to think about it. Everyone's talking, of course, about trying to build community. But no one knows how. And I think in some respects, it's, it's worse now than it's ever been precisely because we're so connected. It's, it's, it's well known that the irony of social media is that it's atomized us even further, isolated us from one another even more. And, and I, I don't think we should we exaggerate the point. There's many ways in which social media has created all kinds of wonderful connections. But in terms of this community building piece, it's actually not particularly helpful. And I think for one obvious reason, it's kind of so obvious that I don't even know if it's worth saying it, but in social media, we don't, for the most part, communicate directly. At least Facebook, Instagram, we actually communicate via symbols of ourselves. We create symbols of ourselves. You know, we we become self marketers, self promoters. It's like giving somebody a, a book about yourself instead of giving them yourself. And so we we're we're constantly trafficking in, in these highly. highly deliberate, strategized, curated self-presentations. Even the media we share, in some respects, we're very careful about it, but it's reflective of the the image of the self that we wish to to communicate. So in many ways, social media is a way of hiding from real community. And we know that it's producing all kinds of political aberrations like the ideological echo chamber where people are not actually engaging at all with ideas that are critical of their own, but only really listen to people who confirm what they say. And we know that this is, uh, this is leading to the erosion of democracy and conspiracy theories and so on. It's a, there's something basically narcissistic about the whole structure, and that's the danger. So I, I don't think that social media is going to be necessarily the solution to this problem of building community. And I think we actually know from studies that the social media generation, you know, the kids younger than ourselves who never really knew a world without it, they're they're suffering mental illness. And I think on a scale and to a degree though, that our generation didn't. And this is something worth paying attention to. So community then in, in the era of social media is going to have to be being together bodily in a space. And here, I think we can take a page from early Christianity. So one of the most important archeological pieces of evidence for what the Christians, who the Christians were in the first centuries of the church is a letter from a, from the governor, uh, the governor of, I'm not sure where he was a governor, but a Roman governor somewhere in Asia Minor named Pliny, who was writing to the emperor, the Roman emperor Trajan and asking him, what should I do about these Christians? And it, it's, I think it's dated to 111. So the letter is fascinating and important because outside of this letter, everything else we know about Christian community comes from the Christians themselves, especially from the letters of Paul and from the Acts of the Apostles. And these are all these are reliable, for sure. These are historical documents. But we don't get the outsider perspective on the movement. Pliny gives us this. And so he writes to the emperor and he says, what am I going to do with these people? You know, they, I torture them. And uh, sometimes they fast, and sometimes they don't. They, they seem to be uh, hated by everyone, but they don't just seem to be guilty of any particular crime. Tell me how I should deal with them. And in the course of this letter, Pliny says what he knows about the Christians. He says, well, they don't seem to be doing anything particularly all that nefarious. What they do is they meet once a week before dawn to sing a hymn together, followed by a common meal. That's it. They got together in a common place before dawn and they sang a hymn. And they they actually they sang a hymn, they pledged an oath, and they ate a common meal. And I think what's exquisite about this little formula is it really gives us the fundamentals of community. Praying together, eating together, and I would add drinking together. If you want to build community, even outside of a religion, what brings people together? What makes them feel one? Singing together, eating and drinking together. You know, that, I think there's too many examples of that from summer camp to the army. Now, when you look around the churches today, at least the churches that I attend, I'm mostly Anglican and Catholic, you can ask yourself, well, how much singing, eating and drinking is going on in these churches? And the answer is not very much. The Anglicans are great at singing, they have wonderful choirs, but nobody in the congregation opens their mouth for absolute fear of being heard or something. And the Catholics are even worse because they don't have great choirs and nobody opens their mouth. And in terms of eating, well, we get this little strange wafer passed around, which nobody could possibly call a meal. And maybe you're lucky, if you're lucky, you'll get a sip of of, uh, communion wine, although that's pretty pre-COVID. So basically nothing. nothing like the early Christian experience is happening in the churches today. And consequently, I think these churches do not create community. I've never felt a community experience in a parish church ever. Now, that's not to say that people have built communities within the parish structure, but they do so in a certain way against the grain, against the structure itself. So let's think further about this. Singing together, eating and drinking together. What we're talking about is at least on one level what we call liturgy ritual shared symbolic life this is what the contemplative cannot really do alone in liturgy we you could say pray in a formalized way together in a sacred space of course the mass is the principal example of this but you could also refer to other kinds of rituals there's neo pagan rituals ritual is extremely spontaneous and natural in human life it's It's not something you need to learn. It actually emerges quite spontaneously. Children actually play little ritual games all all the time. They engage in rituals. It seems to me, and there's some good evidence for this, that it's one of the earliest expressions of human consciousness to engage in the performance of a symbol, which is what a ritual does. It's a way of sharing symbolic life or sharing our, our identity in a symbolic life. So I think there's no way around it. The contemplative has to participate in liturgy if he or she is going to have a community. Now, what does that mean? Well, it certainly could mean going to church. And for me, you know, church going has become more important. I'm a bit of a fussy liturgist and I don't like bad liturgy. So it's hard for me to go to church when there's no good liturgy around. But now I'm living in Montreal and there's There's an abundance of beautiful architecture and and very dignified liturgies happening all the time. So I have no excuse. And it's been really life-giving for me to to return to liturgy. But there's also other ways you can do this. You know, there's the whole phenomena of home church. We know that this is what was happening in the first century. The the Christians did not gather in public places because they were, were not allowed to. They gathered in homes. And there's no reason why a family couldn't. Introduce some very subtle, unself-conscious kind of liturgical life into their into their into the course of their week. You know, we we used to say grace before meals. That's an example of it. But one could go further. One could, if the kids don't want to go to mass, you know, why not read the scriptures together on a Sunday around the table before dinner? Everybody taking a turn. I I've done that before with my own family who are not so excited about church as I am, and it's worked r- really effectively. And the point is, it doesn't really matter what you do. It, all that matters is that you do it. That you gather together and share in a common symbolic life. You know, Pliny doesn't say a couple other things. There's a couple things he doesn't say. And we have to go to other sources. He says that they meet on a certain day before John, before dawn. They sing hymns. They bind themselves by oath, and they share a meal. And actually, in that regard, I think we should consider how they ate. Um, apparently, these mealtime in the Hellenistic Hebraic world in the first century was an elaborate ritual where people reclined on couches in a circle, and 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 they would they would be there for hours eating and drinking. So this is a vote for slow food. You know, maybe the contemplative Christian movement should itself with the slow food movement in order to create a table, what they call table fellowship, once a week, you know, with a community of like-minded people, you know, just lavishly wasting your time on preparing food and enjoying it together. The other thing, the, but the things that are not said in Pliny's letter is that, they, that the Christians practiced a common life. And, and, and to get a sense of that, we have to look to the book of Acts, Acts 4, we have this little phrase, which is extremely important, but even, you know, not much is told about Christian communal life in, in the book of Acts, but this little snippet has gone down through history. And in fact, Marx himself said this was the first communist collective on the basis of this text. He said that early Christian communities were the first communist collective. What's written in Acts 4 is that, quote, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had, end quote. So sharing your goods, sharing your space, sharing your wealth is, is the, the a fundamental of early Christian community. And to get a sense of how radical this was, we have to think about how stratified Roman society was. And many things were permitted in Roman society that we would find a, a, abhorrent, like public execution and torture and slavery and so on. But there are other things that we do all the time that they find abhorrent, namely mixing the classes together, mixing their sexes together in the wrong way in the wrong context. The, the, the Romans regarded these hierarchical social structures as sacred. And to violate them was somehow to do something profane. And I think that one of the Christi- one of the things the Christians did that really offended the Romans is that they brought classes together which really ought to be held apart. As Paul says in Galatians 3. In Christ there is neither slaves, nor free men, and neither, neither men, nor women, neither Greeks, nor Jews. So all are together in this one meal. In other words, the social stratification, which, which otherwise might have to be maintained, Paul doesn't say that the slaves should run away from their masters and the masters should abolish slavery, or that men and women should just practice, should, should disregard the customs, of, the customs of their genders of the time. He, he says all that is well and good. But it's suspended in this space of common life. That's the thing. So for us, it would mean, you know, neither queer nor straight, neither rich nor poor, mm-hmm. neither left nor right. A space in which these social distinctions, which might, might otherwise be important politically or socially, are suspended. And a sharing of goods, I mean, this is really difficult. How does this work? You know there are people, Christians in, in the U.S. who are pursuing this. There's various movements, sometimes mostly associated with Protestantism, but not entirely, that go under the rubric of emerging church, house church, or urban monasticism. And what these movements seem to be motivated by is, first of all, a recognition that the institutional spaces of Christianity are failing to produce community, Christian community, and therefore they are either to be completely overhauled or abandoned altogether. So in the emerging church movement, you'll have things going on like, you know, a, a poorly attended church or a church that has been, what are they called, deconsecrated is reclaimed, let's say once a week, by a group of Christians and used in a fundamentally free way, you know, for, for a discussion, for, uh, for a meal, for a rousing sermon, but to, something that more or less is is, has broken with the formality of the, of the previous structure. We also have this you know, phenomenon of urban monasticism, probably more of a Catholic phenomenon, where Christian families, let's say living on a, on a city block in Chicago or something, will bind together in a certain way. They will look after each other. They will gather together for common meals and common prayer. They might even have a, a rule of life that they share or a kind of pledge or an oath that they will take. In order to, uh, not, not, not simply to, to, to find themselves over and against others, but actually to bind, bind themselves on a deeper level to one another. These are all efforts of taking back public space, taking back public space, particularly from a capitalist context in which there's so little space that's, that's, that's free for the community to use, which is not capitalized, you know, which is not a market space, which is not a mall, which is not owned, corporations, I still think this is one of the, f- one of the great features of, of the existing churches in our cities, is that you can enter them and enter into a non-capitalized space. Whatever else you think about the church, it's not part of, the, of world-integrated capitalism. That's not what's going on there. Yes, the collection plate goes around so that they can keep the heat on, but they're not
1: there to sell you something, so to speak. Some of the reflections that come to me, one is you know within the union world which I, yeah, some somewhat belong in, there. There's often the discussion about the lack of community, and I think from the beginning on, it's been a challenge for for unions to to come together in the way that you present. Jung had this idea about he, he called it the invisible church, that there would be some sort of communion with others, but. I think as I understand him, it's it's other people who are in their process of individuating. So that's kind of exclusive in that regard. And maybe it's also invisible in the way that it's holding others in mind. And you and, and I mean unions. And Mario Stein also brought this up, are struggling with this. And I was thinking about how community and to be in community with others can feel probably very, very challenging for individuals today. To be authentic in communion with others, that's kind of nerve-wracking, maybe even for some people, because we are not used to that. Do you think that in the early stage the early, the early years of the Jung movement, when Jung
0: was alive, the psychological club was active in Zurich, do you think that, that, they, that they had achieved community there and was subsequently lost, or was it never part of the movement?
1: Well, I think it was there, but union work—it's it, such an emphasis on the individual process. No, it's such an emphasis on individuation. Although Jung was very clear with saying that individuation and individualism is something completely different. But I, I do believe that from the beginning on, also with the psychological club, there was there was difficulties. There was were a lot of tensions there. There was difficulties because there was also no. There's no. There's no shared framework around God. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everyone has their own process. Everyone has their own self. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what I'm trying to say, that introducing God, that's, uh, yeah, that's very humbling, that also can extinguish the sense of individual identity for people, I guess.
0: I think that I've, I'm really interested in those early years of the Jung movement and, and used to read a fair bit about it. I do think that the presence of Jung, you know, the, great, uh, the great guru, was the linchpin of the whole thing. And that's a, that's a different kind of structure. It has its place, of course, in, in the history of religion. But I'm not, I'm not sure that, that whatever community was created in Zurich around Jung survived his death. It seems to have not survived his death. But the thing about psychoanalysis that's always attracted me, however, is that it does, I mean, I see what you're saying. There's no God there. But nevertheless, this is not just people who are hanging out together because they like each other. There is a kind of common commitment, and it has to do with that, the training analysis. You know, that, pro- that process that they've all gone through, and which I guess within the context of a school, like a Jungian school, they all actually agree in a certain way on a set of symbols for articulating that process. Anima, animus, whatever, shadow, self. Uh, or if you're in a Freudian context, then it's the Oedipus crisis, and the ego and id, and all this. But the point is that there, there, the, there are the uh, you can see that there's formally speaking some of these elements that we're describing in early Christianity of of, of being identi- identified with one another on the basis of a shared symbolic life, and I, I so I, I think you do get a, a taste of it, and perhaps the reason why people in psychoanalytical circles want more of it is because they get a little taste for it. They, want, they get a sense for it. Then, as you say, the ego steps in and it becomes a, a problem. But it's not as though ego doesn't step into these other contexts. I, I think the real thing is that these communities we're discussing are not, they're not maintained on the basis of friendship. And this is something that monks learn very early on, you know, that they're, they're going to spend the rest of their life with a group of people that they probably wouldn't choose to be with Otherwise, uh, the, 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 these are not a these, you know, maybe friendship can occur. I and mean, if it does, uh, it's a great gift, but generally speaking, you're, you're living, bumping up against people who you're with because of a shared. Spiritual comit- commitment And this be- the monastery then becomes a kind of school of humility. As you, as you feel your ego bruised and abused, you could say by bumping up against the egos of others. And, and so the, the mon- much of the struggle and difficult of living in a monastery has to do with this kind of ordinary stuff, you know? I just can't stand so-and-so just to hear him eat drives me crazy, you know? Or what is is so-and-so small asleep in prayer all the time? Or or this other fellow is acting like he's a saint. He just drives me crazy with this sanctimonious attitude. This kind of stuff, right? And and this is what monks talk to their spiritual directors about. And it's not trivial because the good director will say, this is the opportunity for you to... You know, lay your life down. This is the cross. You know, not to flee from this, but actually to accept these people in your life who drive you crazy as, as you know, the, the great gifts, vehicles for your transformation. And so I, I think that that's, that's the thing. But, but the point about individuation, I think, is a broader point about individualism. And it seems that what we've in our, done in our societies, is we've created all the technologies we could possibly dream of for protecting ourselves from each other. You know, it's like to live completely alone now, but, 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 but functionally engaging with others through me- social media and working from home. It's, it's, it's not just a possible option. It's what many people are choosing to do. So there's nobody bugging me anymore. You know? Nobody will bug me. And nobody will see me. They'll only see my curated avatar. on the, and, and I won't engage with anybody whose views contradict my own. And nobody will ever challenge my own view. And this sounds like a paradise to some, but what we find very soon is that it's in fact hell. It's the hell of isolation because we deeply need each other. We deeply need each other. And that's not just a Christian truth. That is an you know, anthropological truth. We are, the, we are you know, social beings, political animals, according to Aristotle. Aristotle. Or just look at the great apes and how social they are. If you want to accept that we belong, we're we're related to the great apes. Apes love to be together. They're not like, you know, they're not lonely solitaries like bears. Mm. We need each other, and yet we've created all of these buffers and ways of protecting ourselves from each other. And I think we need to recognize that uh, that uh, we're going to have to break this. We're going to have to break out of our little silos and let the others in. And and so the, the, the contemplative community, though, just to repeat a point, is not a community of people who are coming together for friendship. They're gathering together to share a common spiritual
1: symbolic life, to support each other in their solitude, if you like. But I think that's also the thing, the communal symbolic life, that we need symbols that goes beyond, you know, my own symbols that I might meet in my dreams or in my own process of individuation yeah. needs to be some sort of larger communal symbolic that we can ball to or at least relate to in our own different unique ways. Well, don't you think that the, uh, you know, that the psychoanalytical community has a set of common symbols? Certainly they do, you know? No, I don't know if I want to call them. It's not like we bow down to the animal. okay, Maybe there's a bowing down to the self, but that's a very unique rendering of self for each individual. There's no mm. there's nothing that holds it really, I would say as a center. Of course, a person like Jung or a charismatic figure can hold that for for a period, but when he's gone, I think there becomes confusion there, shared vision where there's not a shared symbol that's 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 my sense. I mean, of course, there's community in in the psychoanalytic spheres, and you know many people connect around things, but, but what you're talking about, it, it's something, yeah, it's also about something uniting in that shared communal symbolism. Well, it's the point of, you know, this is not the end of the road, isn't it? I mean
0: psycho psychoanalytical work, therapeutical work, cannot substitute for religion and doesn't work as such. It, doesn't, it fails as religion. So we need something beyond it. We need something religious. We don't need perhaps the institutional religion, but we need something religious, something that will do for us what religion did for our forebearers. I think that's the point. And I, and I take it that it's gotta be, the focus can't just be me and my integration. It has to be, you know, the, what I understand to be the, the purpose of living, the destiny of the human being, you know, the origin and the end, the alpha and the omega. No, I I I think that's that's actually to the point. And so the Christian communities to move into the next thing that I wanted to talk about was why what's the point of a Christian community? What's the point of a contemplative Christian community? Of course, there is the practicing charity and serving one another and maybe mobilizing resources for the poor, but that, you know, sounds just like a lot of other social justice movements. There was something else going on in these early Christian communities, which I think is extremely important to our age and that is that these communities were eschatological communities that is they anticipated the end we know now that the early the early, the early church and, and the Jesus movement was fundamentally eschatological anticipating the end of history in their generation i think we've talked about it before and this eschatological anticipation of the end is 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 an extremely important religious structure which alters everything. It alters our attitude to the present fundamentally, certainly changes our attitude to the past. There's much more to it than carrying a placard saying that the end is nigh. In fact, carrying the placard and saying that the end is nigh on the street corner is not the point at all. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Thessalonians, the point is not to calculate the day and the hour but to live every moment in anticipation of the end, to live every moment in anticipation of the end of history, which is the the glorification of creation, the, the unification of all that was divided, the return of the Christ, or we could say the full revelation and making explicit of the Christ nature, which is the unity of the universe. That's what they anticipated. And by anticipating it, They lived out of it it, as if it was now. So when we look into the the New Testament, we find these these statements about the practical attitude of a community, of an eschatological community. They're, They're everywhere. The mouth of Jesus, for example, in Matthew 24, Jesus says, You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Make sure that you are not alarmed, for this must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes. All these things are birth pangs. I think what's important in that statement is the last, the last sentence. These are birth pangs. The trouble, the chaos, the violence and the war and the disaster are signs that this world is giving way to another one. Not some spiritual never-never land, but a transformed creation. And if you look at Paul's famous phrase in Romans 8, which echoes exactly this this teaching of Jesus, Paul says, all creation is groaning in in pain, like a woman about to give birth. So we're to have this attitude of one who is in the later process, or, or one who is in a world that is passing away and giving rise to a new one. And the new world that is coming is a world of justice and we are to identify with the world of justice and not with the injustice of the present that's the key thing to live out of this to live out of a world of to live out a world of a world of perfect peace of perfect harmony of perfect charity of the of, of god all in all and that creates in the christian a, a, a fundamentally countercultural attitude so there's nothing there there would be nothing resigned about such an attitude, nor would there be anything reactionary. You know, the, the Christian is neither conservative nor progressive because eschatology never looks back. It's never like Lot's wife looking back at Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed and then turning to a pillar of salt. It never looks back because it regards no state of the world as so good as to be worth clinging to. No state of the world is so good that we should, we should cling to it because we, what we anticipate is a perfection that, ha- that is beyond anything that has ever before existed. That is the eschatological attitude. In 2 Peter 3, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth.
1: When I hear you speak like this, I'm wondering, uh, should we welcome the apocalypse? You're a person that's fighting for the clean oceans and nature, and you have this NGO, you're very active in trying to be a part of a positive change of this world. When you speak about the eschatology, it almost sounds like, like those cunts we hear about, you know, we're just waiting and now, now, now comes the end, you know, we should just work. And I'm just wondering how, how did you hold this tension? If there is a tension.
0: Oh, there is certainly. It is the fundamental tension. And it's so important. The question is so important. I'm so happy you raised the question. Because this is, first of all, apocalypse means revelation. We all forget that now. We think apocalypse means, you know, the coming ice age or something. Apocalypse means revelation. And so, yes, indeed, we are anticipating revelation, looking forward to it and welcoming it. But this, but this revelation will be attended a, a, a kind of destruction of the present, that's true. Now, the question is, of course, how, what is our attitude to be to the world that is passing away? Are we to be indifferent to the sufferings uh, of the present age? Are we, to be, are we to be quietistic, you know, just waiting for God to come? Or are we to become, you know, sort of so, so actively engaged in producing the kingdom of God that we forget about grace? there's this is such a fine line this is the razor's edge of contemplative christianity and so few people are able to walk it in the tradition it's but you the, the psychology of it is so subtle but essentially the point is this we're not anticipating let's say we're not anticipating another world you know where we don't have bodies or something like that we're we're anticipating this world perfected and transformed but the perfection of this world is not It's not our efforts. It's not by our efforts. It's not going to be by technical means. So we anticipate a perfection, which we are inadequate to bring about through our own efforts. And yet we're not to be quietistic. That's clear. The point is to stay awake, to stay alert. And we know that the early Christians were anything but quietistic. In fact, one of the greatest effects on history of early Christianity was social justice movements. You know, the Christian is, you know, not somebody sitting around waiting for the apocalypse to fall upon him like, the, like, the, like a rock from the sky, but he's St. Francis, like, you know, exhausting himself in the service of the poor. You can ask yourself, well, why is he doing that? If It's all passing away. He's doing that because he wants to be one who is a participant in the transformation. And he does it with a special attitude. He does it knowing that nothing depends on his success. And so failure will never discourage him. He is never discouraged by his, by his inability to lend whatever gifts he has, whatever energy he has, whatever time he has to the cause. So this is the key, right? This is the, this is the contemplative eschatological attitude, to give yourself wholly over to justice without for a moment presuming that you are adequate to the task. And yet never despairing, never despairing. And when you, when, you, when you see that that's the razor's edge of contemplative eschatological Christianity, you find it everywhere in the scriptures and also in the Christian tradition. So there's a letter of Barnabas, which actually hasn't made it into the canon, but it was regarded as it was regarded by some of the early church fathers as being part of the Bible. Barnabas, as we know, was one of was Paul's helper. And whether Barnabas wrote this or not is not the point. It's a letter that comes from the time when, the, early, when the, the New Testament was written. The letter of Barnabas was probably written in Alexandria, which was a great city on the coast of Africa. There is a city there now, but the older Alexandria was one of the wonders of the world, just a huge cosmopolitan place. Something worth remembering that Christianity thrived in these cities, you know. We we might think that Christians were all, uh, you know, in deserts and in caves and so on, but on the contrary, they were in the cities. So this letter of of Barnabas has as its theme, how how should the Christian live knowing that these are the last days? And there's one phrase that really jumps out at me. It's from chapter 4, verse 9. Barnabas writes, walk circumspectly in these last days. And what gets me is this this term circumspectly, circumspection. What does that mean? It means keep awake, look around, watch, walk, you know, don't hide, be part of the world and be part of the world paying careful attention to what? What are you watching for? You're watching for the inbreaking of Christ's nature. It's happening everywhere. You want to be part of that. You want to foster it. You want to encourage it. You're walking... Paying attention because you expect the world to erupt in in the grace and the light of Christ at any given moment. And you want to be there. You want to help that out. You want to be the one who's participating in that kind of transformation. I think that's the point of a Christian community, is to be a community that anticipates the end in this kind of way. And that kind of anticipation has everything to do with our, with our ecological moment. You know, the, the real challenge to the ecological, ecological activism is that it's so clear that the best efforts of individuals are going to lead to nothing. You know, it's, it, the, the, the more you know about climate science, the less faith you could possibly have in human politics to do anything about it, even if we all had an unimaginable change of will tomorrow. You know, the, the, they're still in the legacy of the industrial age, there is still the legacy of the the greenhouse gases that are in in the system that will take some 800 years to process. So it seems that a hotter and largely uninhabitable earth is inevitable in the future. So is the ecologist therefore to despair and become indifferent and say, well, whatever, there's nothing we can do. Many people are this way. And this is the political indifference that is so pervasive on the contrary. On the contrary, the, 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 college, the ecological activist has to have this eschatological attitude of giving himself wholly to the task, knowing that he's inadequate to it, and that maybe his efforts will not have any huge, make any huge difference on the course of things. It's a kind of faith, a yeah, faith as you like in humanity. Of course, with Christianity, we're talking about something much bigger, but I think that this this eschatological attitude can be found in the environmental movement, particularly where we have a kind of honest recognition of the apparent hopelessness of the situation.
1: So if you would sit down with this, I'm uh, thinking what about the Fridays for Future and all these young people who are engaging themselves in communal work and activity and, and, and doing so much cultivating in that field and protesting in that field. And I'm wondering what could they learn from a contemplative Christian? Well, I do
0: sit down with them and I work with them extensively. I've been quite involved, more involved in recent years in environmental activism than I have in, in you know building up contemplative Christian community. That, that's, 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 that, I, I'm still dreaming about that one, but I, I, the environmental stuff I know very well. I, I think, you know, I, I would say that this eschatological attitude of giving yourself wholly over to the cause, knowing that success depends on other power, however you define that, this is absolutely crucial to not burning out. And sometimes I talk about you know things like the relative recent development of human civilization in terms of human past as a way of creating, let's say, at least a recognition that we're you know that maybe our moment is not really such a big deal. You know that we should start thinking about we should start, we should take a page from from climatologists and geologists and start thinking about the deep future, not just of the earth but of humanity, and think about who humanity could be in five thousand years. It's not a long time in terms of the 300,000 years of human history. Now, why do we have such difficult planning for that kind of future? And yeah. for me, this kind of imaginative exercise gives us a certain productive detachment from the present and also a probably a healthier attitude towards technology. Instead of regarding it as this great evil, let us regard it as something we don't know how to use yet. Let's have a little patience with, with our fumbling efforts to, 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 to use technology in, in the service of humanity. I don't
1: mean being Pollyannish about it at all. I guess I'm wondering still about the eschatological, it, it, it's going to end you know it this is a part of the story it sounds like you're talking about what's going to happen in 5000 years and it's good with perspective but i guess this is a very hopeful situation you know the apocalypse is going to reveal to us exactly so i'm the wondering what's about hope. Yeah. it's hope exactly but yeah. how do you speak of that hope because It sounds so important, the the work you do, but also how to build that link, because I think many, many, many of these people are disillusioned. And when they've been fighting and they're exhausted, yeah, what do you do? You go over to, I don't know what, like, yeah, you get burned out, you get depression. But how can this be viewed from this revelatory lens that I think you're offering?
0: Well, I'm very interested in the, you know, in the religious motivations and in, that emerge in environmentalism. It's not, it's not that uncommon. In fact, mm-hmm. usually it has to do with you know being spiritual but not religious. It's usually earth centered, nature centered. People want to, people feel the presence of the holy in, in the natural world. And we could mock these attitudes and say they're romantic, uh, but I think if we do, we do so at our peril. That this is. You know, this is the site of the holy in the secular age, and I think we should gather around these places and recognize that if you know that, that this needs to be cultivated, I think that the new civilization to come, the ecological civilization, will be galvanized in a religious way. I don't know what their religion will be, but it's at least my reading of history. All the great transformations in history had a religious quality to them, it's only religion you know, which, which transforms on that collective scale, leads to a complete conversion of heart and mind and a, a new kind of thing erupts. And so there, there is, I think, something still to, we don't know when the end will be, but we can anticipate at least a, a coming convergence of humanity around a common recognition of the sacredness of the earth. Even just the recognition of the, let's say the singularity of the earth, which science seems to be confirming over and over again, you know, as we looked further and further at exoplanets, for anything like this extraordinary uh, gardening Earth, we begin to realize, begin to reckon with the possibility that this might be the only one. This might be the only environment, natural environment for human beings. And how precious that becomes, you know, that that material kind of practical recognition of the singularity of the Earth, that's not very far from recognizing it as something that, can, that should not be commodified, something that uh, has to be protected, has to, be, has to enter into any kind of economic plan, economic schema, that the earth is ground, the earth is holy, the earth is not the possession of any one, but the, the common good of all. This kind of talk, of course, is not uncommon. We find it right from the very beginning of the environmental movement. I think it's an important you know, important sign of the new, the new experience of what I, what we, should, what we're calling Christ nature, you know, Barnabas says, walk circumspectly, keep your eyes on what's going on. I think he would say, pay attention to what these young kids are, what, what what's motivating these young kids. Pay attention to the discussion around environment. Pay attention to the disaster that's happening as we, let's say, you know. Remain recalcitrantly attached to older forms of politics, like to war and to competition, in a situation in which they have no possible future. You know, there's no possible future for Putin's politics. There's only a future maybe for Putin, but there's no possible future for humanity with those kinds of politics. We know that. So we pay attention to these, you know, the, the struggle between good and evil that's happening right, right around us. And Invest ourselves in the good, draw close to those sites of the holy, and let we don't have to be too quick to to label them or to you know to to enter into a theological debate about you know what's what exactly it is where we revere when we revere the earth. I think we're all going to have to come to this place of reverence from a different space. You know? the scientists will come from one position; people from other religions will come from different you know different position, Islam will have its own way in, you know, the Asian religions will have their way in. But we will all gather at, around this one hearth, this one, this one altar, you could say, of the earth, this one site of the sacred. We will do that, or, or there won't be a future. Now how does that fit in with anticipating the end of history? Well, yeah, that's the paradox, right? That is the paradox. But to anticipate the end, I, I'll only say this, to anticipate the end is not to try to prepare, is not to foreclose an inexhaustible effort to improve the situation for humans and non-humans on the planet. On the contrary.
1: That reminds me of that last scene of this movie, Melancholia from Lars von Trier. I don't know if you've seen it. I have seen it, yes. You have seen it when they're sitting. They're, yeah, yeah. The apocalypse it comes and they're sitting holding hands in this. I don't know if it's a little tent or huts, but
0: yeah, it's a little tent. Yeah, uh, that's an extraordinary scene. Extraordinary apocalypse. Yeah, yeah not, L- Lars von Trier is hardly a technological thinker because he's a nihilist. But it's he might have said something in that last scene that he didn't even intend to say. I'm not sure.